everybody, before we start this episode, we wanted to let you know that we're running a special giveaway via our social medias. This time we're giving away four copies of The King of Staten Island. If you haven't heard about this film before, it comes from celebrated comedy director Judd Apatow and SNL's Pete Davidson. It's critically acclaimed, it's heartfelt, and it's comedic, and it'll all be available on digital and Blu-ray August 25th. Now, these special DVDs features over two hours of hilarious, never-before-seen content, including alternate endings, deleted scenes, and of course, a gag reel. And if you didn't know, this is actually a film inspired by Pete Davidson's own true story. So head on over to our social media at ButWhyThoughPC on Twitter and Facebook, and you can enter for your chance to win a copy now. podcast and today we're going to be talking about one of the most formative forces in science fiction isaac asimov as always i'm kate and i'm here with adrian hey how's it going and matt hello and today we have a special guest who is also the reason that our podcast sounds good jason hey hey it's been a very long time since you've been on the show so one, thank you for that. Two, I think this is the first time you've been on the show since you've been our producer. That is true. It's been like at least three decades or so. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just since March. <laughs> exactly. I think Bojack Horseman, which I believe is in the 70s. Oh, that's what it was. Is yes. Bojack. It was back when I was interning in, in a place in Baltimore and commuting back and forth every week, and I was at an Airbnb doing that last recording so it's been a while <laughs> back um, when airbnbs were safe oh yeah. gosh um so for everybody listening who don't know you like we know you why don't you give them a quick intro to you and why you're on this episode sure i am the senior editor at but why though where i edit people's Written work on our website, butwhythepodcast.com, and I also edit the podcast every week. And I'm on the show today because I like Isaac Asimov books. I've been <laughs> reading them for a couple of years, and I and uh, there's a new a new series that was announced on Apple TV Plus based on one of his series. And then I said we should do him. Now here we are. <laughs> <laughs> That is correct. As I look in the spreadsheet, and I was like, oh, Jason put a topic on here. <laughs> and it's one of the more serious topics I've recommended in, in recent months. This is not true. Luigi. <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. Um, so to start everything off, I'm going to be leading this episode mainly based on my really, really strong obsession with the three laws of robotics, which is some weird thing in my science fiction brain. 
Um, but to start off with our question, as we always do before we move into history, uh, have y'all read Isaac Asimov's work? And if you have, what's your favorite thing? Um, I'll go first. So I'm going to probably go with no, but obviously <laughs> I know him for like different reasons. Obviously the three laws of robotics, as you mentioned, and then obviously the movies that were kind of adapted into that stuff. And then obviously the weird thing is I know him from the American hum uh, Humanist Association. Um, that would probably be the first, my technically my first introduction to kind of stuff. Like, I guess I knew the work, but like knowing like, you know, more about him in that sense. Um, obviously, as everybody probably knows, I'm an atheist on this thing, so obviously I know the organization and everything else along with other stuff. But that's probably, like, I don't think I've ever read any of his stuff, per se. Maybe some of the, maybe some short, like, tidbits from it, but overall, like, not Jason-filled of reading books. This is, like, the perfect moment for my fun fact, which was that he is, he was one of the presidents of the American Humanist Association. And he was in it with Gene Roddenberry because two of the biggest science fiction forces were atheists, which is really cool, in my opinion. Anyway. Yeah, but, but that's how I knew him before even his like, way of science fiction. Uh, Adrian? Uh, does really, really liking the Will Smith iRobot movie count? Yes, it counts. Reading his work. No, no gatekeeping Asimov here. <laughs> Just watching Bison and Tenniel Man like on AMC. Yes. <laughs> I Cal. hate that movie so much. <laughs> so do I. But, yeah. um, no, I, I haven't read any of his work, but um, just being kind of like, you know, pop culturally literate, um, I know that he's like, he's like basically like the father of, you know, science fiction robotics wise. And I think, did we, we might have talked about him a little bit on our, um, when we talked, like whenever we've talked Star Trek, I'm pretty sure we brought him up. Oh, him up a couple yeah, times. I think we, we did because um, he he worked as a consultant on it. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure. Like, so I know him from like that more than I do, I guess, all of these books that you're going to talk about here in a little bit. Um, but haven't read anything, but I do like science fiction and I do like robots. So, and Jason said that they're on audiobook, and I do love audiobooks. So. <laughs> Um, I'll go next so that Jason can take us home with his more knowledge than me. Uh, I have read a lot of Isaac Asimov short stories. I've never read his entire, like any of his series in entirety. Um, but I do think my favorite book, which I have, I have two copies. I have one with the original, uh, the original cover art and then i have one with the will smith cover art is no surprise to anybody but a very basic answer i robot um because <laughs> i just really enjoy that book uh i talk about a lot uh, whenever we bring in anything that's book related i talk about how i've like i've read stuff with my dad and my dad really likes isaac asimov like a whole bunch um, to this day, my dad won't say that he's an atheist, but given my dad's, like, library that he kept and the people that he loved the most, I'm very interested to know. It, it just, it fits and it tracks, but I'll leave that neither here nor there. Uh, but yeah, I, I really like that, and more specifically, I just am really fascinated with the concepts of the Three Laws of Robotics, just because, um... A fun fact about me is when I was doing my master's work my first year, I was, I did a seminar in science and religion specifically, and that actually helped bring me to, I got to go to SETI, um, 
to talk uh, to do to to hear a talk and conference about extraterrestrial life and all of that also coincides with robotics a lot of the time so that kind of really that was really formative for my academic career um so yeah isaac asimov is dope when it comes to his writing uh jason yeah i have read a good few asimov books and short stories I think it was it wasn't it wasn't all that long ago i got into him i mean it was maybe the summer of like 2015 was the first time i'd ever even heard of him and it was because i was reading an article about ralph mcquarrie mcquarrie uh drawings of robots and how in the 80s he made new covers for the uh asimov's robot books and uh I was reading this article and went, who's this guy? And then looked him up and was like, oh, he's got a ton of books that are like all in one, one, one fiction. Let's start with the first one. And uh, so I, I've, I've read three, the first three of the four robots books, which is where the, the three laws of robotics comes from and like where I robot and a ton of his short stories fit in. Um, I've read two of the three Empire books, and then I started listening to Foundation yesterday, which is his most famous book, but I didn't start with it because it's like book seven in the chronology, and I wanted to read them in the like chronological order. Because he's, he's one of those guys that, you know, wrote short stories in the 40s and 50s and then put them into books later because that's how publishing worked then. Yep. And then in like the 60s 70s and 80s he was still writing and said you know actually all these stories really they, they're all one story even though they weren't originally and decided this is the new order this is the chronology and this is how you should read them and so that's the order I, I've, I've been reading them in over the last bunch of years and the robot books are my favorite and we'll get into why they are I'm sure plenty <laughs> as we go along but uh and I, I've read some of the short stories here and there but I mean the dude's got literally just dozens of books and hundreds of short stories in on, on so many subjects it would be impossible for somebody to read all of them within yeah. a span of time that's more than reasonable <laughs> yeah um and i will say too uh kind of as we move into the history when we think about science fiction as a genre there are like really two people in my opinion, that kind of shape it. And the first is Mary Shelley with Frankenstein. She kind of pushes, she begins science fiction when it comes to like medical and technology advancement. Um, so the more human side of it. And then on the other side, you have Isaac Asimov who advances science fiction as a genre through robots, um, which is another one of the things that like we, we really know, um, which is funny because he got critiqued a lot for it, which we'll get into. Um, so as we move into his history, um, Isaac Asimov was, Amer was an American writer and professor of biochemistry at Boston University. So not only did this man have a prolific writing career, he actually had a full career in academia. Um, he, I believe he got into Col or one of the Columbia colleges when he was 15 years old after being denied a whole bunch of times. And then he, so he started his college education at 15, which eventually led him to pursue medicine, which is what he wanted to do. He then got denied from all of the med schools that he applied to. 
and then he applied to biochemistry and got a, got denied there. And then after a process, he finally got into a biochemistry PhD program and he became probably one of the most well-known popular science writers as well at the time, um, in conjunction to being one of the best known science fiction authors as well. I like the um, funny thing about that is like he was getting rejected for this stuff like at 16, 17, yeah. 18. Like now people don't even apply until like 20. <laughs> Yeah, he was also, like, an on-again, off-again member of Mensa, too. Um, there was just, like, weird stuff going on there. But the man was intelligent. That much was 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 sure. Um, so he is known for his works in science fiction and popular science. Like I said, the difference between popular science and science textbooks is that popular science is made for mass consumption. And like most things in academia, not everybody likes that you publish those things. But he has a very, very long bibliography of different types of um, astrophysics, physics, chemistry, all those types of things that he used to write. Um, his original name was Isaac Judah Asimov, so a I S A A K, and then his last name was spelled O Z I M O V. But because him and his family were immigrants from Petrovichi, Russia, they ended up anglicizing their name when they came to the United States, like many people did and still do um which is how we end up with his current spelling which is i-s-a-a-c-a-s-i-m-o-v um and a lot of that just had to do with how the cyrillic alphabet transferred over to american english um asimov wrote hard science fiction so this is a lot of uh, the differentiations between light science fiction and hard science fiction or science fiction light is just how much you're pushing the boundaries of the concepts that you're utilizing um, so if you think about something that's light science fiction, it'll probably be something that is closer to our um, near future with small deviations in technology. Technically, you could look at that last season of Parks and Rec as light science fiction because of the differences that they use with technology. And then something that would be hard science fiction would be something like Star Trek or Asimov's work. Um, just like the farther away you get from the present and the more advanced you get with technology kind of is where that line gets drawn, um, which again is fairly subjective too. Um, along with Robert A. Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke, Asimov was considered one of the big three science fiction writers during his lifetime. Asimov's most famous work is the Foundation series, and the first three books won the one-time Hugo Award for Best All-Time Series in 1966. His other major series, the Galactic Empire series and the Robot series, the Galactic Empire novels are set in an earlier history of the same fictional universe of the Foundation series, back to what Jason said, where he was just like, yo, this is all one giant story. <laughs> um, and then... Yeah, the, the Empire books weren't even, like, related to each other. <laughs> They're still not related to each other. They, none of them are connected to any of the other stories. They just, like, take place in the same general time period-ish, sort of. It that, reminds me uh, of Tolkien and his appendices, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Um, and then, uh, so the first three, uh, I keep losing the spot. Okay. And then later, the foundation of Earth in 1986, he linked to a distant future to the robot series, created by uh, creating a unified future history for the series, much like those pioneered by Robert Heinlein and previously Carpenter Smith and Paul Anderson. Uh, he also wrote hundreds of short stories, including social science fiction novelette Nightfall, which is good. I like that one. Um, 
which was came out in 1964 and was voted best short uh, best short science fiction story of all time by the Science Fiction Writers of America. Asimov also wrote the Lucky uh, the Lucky Star series, which is a YA science fiction novel series using the pen name Paul French. And then, in addition to that, Asimov also wrote mysteries and uh, mysteries and fantasies as well as much of nonfiction. Most of his popular science books explain concepts in a historical way, going as far back as possible to a time when science in question was at the simplest stage. Examples include Guide to Science, the three volume of Understanding Physics. The Asimov's Chronology of Science and Discovery, and he also wrote numerous other science, scientific and non-scientific topics such as chemistry, astronomy, mathematics, history, biblical exegesis, and literary criticism. So I will say, I probably have heard, obviously watched enough uh, science shows to hear probably more of those works referenced than I have the other actual science fiction stuff. Which is kind of weird yeah. because, like, I was excited about this, but then as you said, I was like, I don't know if I know as much, but I knew I didn't. I knew he did science fiction, but that's not how I came to know him. <laughs> yeah, because it's one of those things is when you look at his, his writing career, it, he very much has periods where he goes hard nonfiction and then straight back into academia, popular nonfiction, fiction, straight back into academia. And it, when I was looking at his timeline, it was actually really interesting, and I understood it because in in the the biography pages that I was looking at didn't say this, but it reminds me a lot of like when people in academia do really really hard to get their first two books published before tenure, and then they get a sabbatical, and then they do all the stuff they wanted to do, and then they have to come back after tenure, pop out like five or six books, and then they get to do the thing they like again. Um, and I don't know if that was the case for Asimov, but knowing that he kept his full academic career during the entirety of his writing, I would feel comfortable saying that's probably what happened. No, we all we all get antsy. We we wanna we wanna move get tired of work <laughs> and uh as always we're gonna shift into your but why those but we're going to do it after this message from manscaped 2020 has been the year of things happening that are completely out of your control but there is one thing that you can control and that's shaving your bush our sponsor at manscaped are here to remind you to do so yeah, and I'm going to talk about the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. It's a premium electric trimmer that's designed to give you a confident boot through body image. Plus, their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology are designed to reduce nicks or tugs on your fellows down low. Uh, the Lawnmower 3.0 is also waterproof and comes with a nice LED light so you can manscape in the shower, in the dark, or in a dark shower, whatever floats your boat. And they have more than just ways to shave your balls. Now, with the Shears 2.0 Nail Kit... This also allows you to now pluck your eyebrows and trim your nails in style. That's not all. You can also clean your nose and your ears with the Weed Whacker, featuring the same skin-safe technology that you use on your balls. So, this is where I tell you, you treat your face well, you might as well treat your balls well, too. You can pick up other products like the Crop Reviver, a testy toner that's like having cologne that is designed for your balls, and the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. Plus, listeners of this show get 20% off and free shipping with code BUTWHYTHOUGH at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the code BUTWHYTHOUGH, B-U-T-W-H-Y-T-H-O. So take care of your balls. Now, as we move into the BUTWHYTHOUGHs, 
the first one and pretty much the one that is the overarching one for the entire for the entire reason that we're talking about him is writing. Uh, so Asimov's career can be divided into several periods. His early career was dominated by science fiction and it began with short stories in 1939 and then novels in 1950. This lasted until about 1958, all but ending after the publication of The Naked Sun. After that, he began publishing nonfiction as co-author of a college-level textbook called Biochemistry and Human Metabolism. Following the brief orbit of the first man-made satellite Sputnik by the USSR in 1957, his production of nonfiction, particularly popular science books, greatly increased and a consequent drop in his science fiction output happened. Um, then in the 1980s, the second half of his science fiction career began with the publication of the Foundations, of Foundations Edge. Uh, from then until his death, Asimov published several, several more sequels and prequels to his existing novels, tying them together in a way that he had not originally anticipated and making them a unified series. Um, when you break down what Asimov has written series-wise, he's actually written more series than any other science fiction author, author with five complete ones under his belt. Uh, Asimov also won 18 awards while he was alive, which included the Hugo Award for Best Novel for The Gods Themselves and the Hugo Award for Best Nonfiction Book, which is I, Asimov, a memoir. Um, I do want to ask Matt, since he's the designated scientist on this podcast, uh, if you could explain a little bit about like what si popular science writing is. Just ask Bill Nye on that, I guess. That'd be... <laughs> uh, I mean... I think, I mean, obviously anybody that's done academia, at least from looking at the science stuff and like even with the shows of, there's just a language barrier. And so at least in my, at least in my sense, when it comes to doing a, gen, a large general audience, um, obviously I didn't do these hard stuff, but when I did do like, I did obviously a lot of like plants uh, of education type stuff when I did it. And so what our goal was from there was to be able to teach something that, you know, at the level of, you know, science, you know, with like, there's like 150 different terms just to name the pubescent of a plant and, you know, how they are. That's just variations of hairs. And so what our goal was there, which I'm assuming what you're referring to here, trying to do it to a general audience, was trying to relay this information without saying, just overwhelming people with a, basically a different language barrier. And so I'm assuming doing this, and I mean, even you spoke in for, because of your stuff of just like, there are books in academia that are written for like 10 people and then there's stuff that's like as they call it you know the pop science or pop fiction or popular culture or whatever stuff where basically they throw popular at the in the beginning of it and yeah. it's designed to try to get people interested in more of these things i mean to me this has been one of my biggest critiques um that me and i have talked about when it comes to doing these types of writings and basically education of like People try to use the $20 words all the time, and it actually turns off a lot of people to where if we actually, not necessarily dumb down what we're teaching, but just kind of break this language barrier, because, I mean, everything's written, especially in science, and basically Latin and all this other stuff. Um, and so, like, if you just break down these, like, a, like I said, essentially a language barrier, you can probably get more people interested in science and chemistry and everything and just kind of explain it from a fundamental, like, easy you know, to relatable um, way 
to everybody instead of like, hey, you know, what are these, you know, potassium, sodium channels and iodines and, you know, PPS and stuff. And I, I said, I can sit here and throw out random terms all day long and, I mean, it sounds smart all I want. And, you know, some bit of it is, is education and what they do. But for the common person and general audience, they're not going to know what the hell I meant to say and probably just tune me out. And, like, the reason I kind of wanted, wanted you to mention that is when I was putting together the notes, I was thinking about, like, how different academia was structured back then because, I've said it multiple times already, he had a full academic career while also writing science fiction, writing so much popular science because, and it's weird to me because now uh, when I was doing my PhD, if you got branded a popular scholar, like that was actually, like that was a slight against you. Like if somebody would say, oh yeah, you're writing a pop, you're writing, you're writing a, a popular book or you're doing popular theology or something like that, it was used to kind of like put you down a little bit because you weren't writing for that academic audience. And so now I think it's, 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 it's really weird looking back because when we look at like the history of authors that we have and things like fantasy and science fiction, like even thinking about Tolkien and stuff, like academia was very much also a very good place for producing fiction and for producing things that weren't just going to be those 10 people audiences and now at least in my field uh it was it was you got shunned for it and it's one of the reasons like i left because i was doing popular culture as a scholarly study um and you had to like they wanted me to make the choice do you do this purely scholarly or you do this for a popular audience and so I guess just looking at Asimov's work it's amazing the type of impact that he was able to have on every single one of these levels from pure fiction to popular audience to pure academic um, yeah I will say like obviously I can't speak for everybody you know I guess obviously what in what field I was in and everything and it's science and stuff but I do know there's quite a few scientists especially these days that are pushing for trying to you know make stuff you know like this per se because I mean we talk about Star Wars is a big one we talk about how it, and you've mentioned it, even Star Trek as we've done before of like just doing these types of stories has like you know integrating science has made it to where they are taking concepts and they are taking kind of like actual fundamental stuff, but they made it to where people enjoy it to where all of a sudden now we have astrophysicists. Now we have, you know, actual, you know, not astrophysicists, but, you know, just a physicist in general, you know, biologist and roboticists. As they say. I mean, like and, half the people on the U.S. space station right now are literally giant Star Trek fans who decided that they wanted to be astronauts because <laughs> of Star Trek. Yeah, it's been weird seeing, like, as we've gotten more of, like, I've seen a pushback because it seems like that has gone, at least in my field as well, of, like, people just like, you know, this is what we do, this is who we interact with, you know, don't talk to the plebs, but, you know, there is a pushback of using stuff, I mean, the funny thing is we even want to branch out as far as much, even kind of a little, almost like, tangent-wise of, like, at least in my field, using social media in general is bad, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, it's funny because we talk, like, you know, using social media, even Twitter, like, how dare you? What is wrong with you? But then you see, you know, kind of the pushback of, like, people should get on there. So, one, you can inform general masses and you can inform just the general public and get people to talk to you and stuff so they don't have to go spend, you know, yeah. $300 to go to a random conference so you can spit out a bunch of words that basically just said, I collected plants. And that's it. I mean, it. I got scolded when I started this podcast by my advisors. 
because they said it was going to ruin my academic career. Just don't, just don't ask what a biome is on this podcast. Yeah, you get yelled at. <laughs> well, no, I mean it's weird because people think about it and laugh, but it's literally that is what ends up happening and why we end up with these like tiered or academia or just like elitist type stuff because it's either you join this elitist stuff and use your twenty dollars words or we don't care what you have to say. Like I got probably shunned all the time because they're like, why did you explain that without using you know the quote unquote proper technol or terminology all the time? And I'm like, because. It still means the exact same thing. It's just now, uh, I can say that to anybody. I can say that to like my mom. I can say that to like a child. I can say that thing, and they'll understand what I'm saying at least in some concept. Versus what you just said, ninety percent of the people in the country or even the world have no idea what you just meant. So two things: one, this is why Bill Nye discovering TikTok is the best thing. Two, this actually goes really well into another fun fact and a bigger point, but a fun fact. Um, which I kind of already alluded to. So both Gene Roddenberry and um, and Isaac Asimov knew each other, and part of it was the humanist was being a part of the 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 humanist association. But the other part is because when uh, Star Trek originally ran in the '60s, Isaac Asimov did not like it because of inconsistencies with actual science, and so Gene Roddenberry wrote him this really really long letter. Because he actually was such a giant fan of Asimov's work. And he finished that letter by saying, this may not be 100% correct, but what it will do is it will make new science fiction fans who will go read your work and who will go do these, and who will go to do science outside of that. And from that letter, you end up a, you end up having a really strong relationship developing between Asimov and Roddenberry as friends, but also in a creative capacity where Roddenberry, who was already using science consultants on the original Star Trek, then brought in Asimov to do those as well. Um, it got to the point to where Roddenberry wanted to adapt, um, I think it was specifically iRobot, but he wanted to adapt some of uh, Asimov's works. Unfortunately, they both died before any of that happened. But it's one of those things where in Asimov's own career, and like when you think about science fiction, especially in the United States, it's, it is Asimov and then it is also Roddenberry when you look at like who has had an impact on us in two different mediums, right? Uh, literature and then television and so to know that they also had this kind of discussion is also really really interesting and really intriguing and it really points to the importance of wanting to reach new people consistently that's also just hilarious because asimov just made stuff up all the time like that's what science fiction is (laughs) like (laughs) like what is he complaining about he literally wrote a his first book was about a an atom that gets split and a guy slips in 10,000 years into the future by accident. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, because you have this weird thing, because like, there are some science fiction authors who, like, literally claim that, like, this is fake, but it's fake based on X, Y, and Z principles that are real principles. Which is how that should Mine's always just... be. Because when you break the principles, then it bugs me. Like, I have that problem, We're too. We're not like, going to if... talk about time travel. Time tra- we're going to go in there. But I'm just saying in general, like, it, as long as you have and meet the principles or set whatever guidelines you're doing, it's fine to make up stuff, but you still have to have principles and laws and fundamentals of what you're writing. Because once you yeah. break those, no, of course. then it just makes no damn sense. 
time travel. That's why Star Wars is in science fiction. Yep, it's a space it's opera, like, and it's a fantasy. And it's, and it's like, <laughs> I just I just imagine Asimov being like, Gene, your fake stuff's just too fake. <laughs> my, yeah, fake I mean, really least, my fake stuff's at least real. <laughs> I mean, at least there's a lot of stuff we've seen, and Kate makes fun of a lot of my uh, the movies that we've talked about before. Where I watch a bunch of disaster type movies that has terrible science in it. But Geostorm. We went uh, to the theater to watch Geostorm. Just Geostorm saying. Geostorm is one of the worst ones. All the big budget ones are terrible. The better <laughs> ones are. Yeah. But no, Sharknado? it's just one of. Uh, no. But no, like if some of these ones where they're like, you know, theoretically, based on all of the principles and stuff, this could happen. But it probably is so minute it would never happen. But let's make a movie on this thing that one in a trillion thing could happen. Because it's possible. But it's never going to happen. So before we... So I've kind of structured... I've broken down the main but why though. Which is his writing into different sections. Um, and the first of which is the critiques of his writing. Because I figured I would sandwich good, bad, good. Um, for the easiest consumption of this podcast. Because uh, I feel like most of my episodes end with a, a sad note. Because I don't know how to do that usually. Um, so we're going to dive Classic into the... Classic management. <laughs> And so we're going to try, we're going to uh, jump into the critiques of his writing. And the first of which is his portrayal of women. Because shocker, a man in the 1930s to 70s could not write women well. <laughs> in a surprise to everyone. Um, That's why I went to robots. They were easier. <laughs> um, so Asimov ultimately was critiqued for a lack of strong female characters in his early work in his audio autobiographical writings such as gold women in science fiction he acknowledges this and responds by pointing to inexperience um his later novels were written with more female characters but it was essentially essentially the same prose style as his early science fiction stories which brought this matter to a wider audience for example in the in 1985, Washington Post Book World section reports robots and empires as follows. In 1940, Asimov's humans were stripped down masculine portraits of America of Americans from the 1940s, and they still are. His robots were tin cans with speed lines like an old stew baker and still are. The robot tails depended on increasingly unworkable distinction between movable and unmovable artificial intelligences and still do. In the Asimov universe, because it was conceived a long time ago and because its author abhors confusion, there are no computers whose impact is worth noting, no social complexities, no genetic engineering, aliens, archaeologies, uh, multiverses, clones, sin, or sex. His heroes in this case are Danielle Olawal, whom we first met as a robot protagonist in the Caves of Steel and its sequels, feel no pressure of information and raw or cooked, and the simplest, and as the simplest of us do today they suffer no deformation from the winds of the asimov future because it's so deeply strikingly orderly um so that to me as much as it's and the reason i, I included that full quote other than it being uh, on you know what i came up you know came upon was the fact that i think that like as much as this piece was a critique of how he writes women it's also a larger critique of why i i kind of didn't get into a lot of the the series that Asimov has because he's very straightforward. Matt, you would actually really like Asimov's writing because yes. he is very straightforward. He is logical. There's a start point. There's an end point, And there's like no like 
I don't know. Like, his humans have, like, next to no ambiguity in how they feel things or think of things and that kind of stuff. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Jason, but it 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 is just very, uh, there's no emotion. Good. It, it's... <laughs> <laughs> or it's there there is like the character the characters when they're die there's there's plenty of very flat characters but like the characters when they're expressing emotion it's very cut and dry and clear and this is what is being felt right now as opposed to like and he was sad it's telling it's telling and not showing <laughs> yeah um and so uh, as his later stories developed, he did uh, some of his robot series, including the earliest ones, did feature the character Susan Calvin, who was a forceful and intelligent, intelligent woman who regularly outperformed her male colleagues. And so for me, I think that maybe like that's probably like the only woman I actually remember from any works that I read of him. Um, and she's the one that invents robots. Isn't she? Yes. Yes. Um, and the one thing that I do think that is really interesting about Asimov, which is as much as he does have his critiques, he always answered them in later works. So, like, he would specifically do something to prove that he could do it um, after somebody would critique his work. Um, so the, uh, the larger part also that puts into his portrayal with women is the fact that while Asimov believed himself a feminist, although... He believed himself a feminist, not necessarily because he believed women should be equal, but because he believed that feminine equality would mean population control. <laughs> that was his reason. Yeah. Wait, I'm taking this back to I'm taking this back a second to the uh, characters where they just express how they feel out loud instead of showing us. There's I can't I can't find the exact quote, but basically, uh, in one of the robot novels, when the like main robot character and the main human character meet each other again they there's a clear like development of these characters where they you know the human is suddenly a lot more like fond of robots than ever before and you know humans absolutely detest robots on earth during this time period and the robot he arrives and he's like if i could feel i would say that i missed you too and it's this like really actually like beautiful moment especially because it was written like 40 50 years after the last robots book i'm pretty sure so it's like really nice moment but it's like let me tell you and my with my cold robotic hands how i feel emotionally and it's it's I definitely actually really enjoy that but it's like it's actually a really great little moment and it's it's you know, so it's not like there's no emotional depth to the stories or the characters it's just the way that he writes it asimov kind of was like, in fact a robot who only thought that way <laughs> Exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, it's as if he himself was a robot that understood emotion but couldn't express it in full himself. Which, you know, based on all of his other hypermasculinities, doesn't yeah. sound surprising. But pretty much. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the other the other thing that is in this whole women point that I felt that I had to include and kind of comment on is uh so yeah, while he believed himself a feminist, uh, he was also a very typical man of the 1950s into the 1970s, and essentially a lot of Asimov's behavior led to, uh, as a leading science fiction author and personality, contributed to an undesirable atmosphere for women in the male-dominated space of science fiction. 
Um, and specifically, it was because he would hit uh, he would hit on women all of the time and touch them as well at conventions, conferences, fan signings, which is actually interesting because he met his second wife at a fan signing. Um, and so essentially, one of the things that I would like to point out as a woman who loves science fiction is as much as it is his fault for being a terrible, terrible creep, um, the community let it happen continually. So the fact that the science fiction community at that time facilitated this type of stuff, not just from Asimov, but there are other writers that did the same type of behavior, uh, all of that led to having a um, either women only writing under pen names or a lot of women not not writing outright, which is why we have the like the golden age of science fiction is completely male dominated with male stories, and all of that is because of the type of atmosphere that was created. Um, and because of Asimov's like prolific nature in it, he was one of the main people who contributed to it. But yeah, so it sucked to, and this is despite a woman literally inventing science fiction. Uh, but yeah, that happened. Uh, Welcome to the fifties. Welcome to the fifties and or any situation that wasn't, Hey, go be a housewife, uh, in any community. Uh, which sucks, and which is one of the beautiful things about Star Trek, because although there were issues in Star Trek, Roddenberry made it very, very clear that that wasn't welcome in his community, so when the first fan con started with Star Trek, they were very welcoming. Just saying. Um, yeah, even even though, I mean, like like you said, he, he took criticism and later would try and incorporate, like, better attempts at things into his later books, like, Yes, in his later books, he included more women, like, yeah, uh, I already forget her name, but the one that literally invented robots. Susan. Susan, uh, yeah. But so, like, in, he, he had, he had one character in the second robot book, Lindaya, who was, like, a hapless, helpless woman that accidentally got caught up in a mystery murder scheme and just like all of the women he'd written to that point was basically you know didn't really have their own personhood didn't have their own autonomy over anything and was just hypersexualized and all of these just blah 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 and so in like the later robot books when he returns to the series he includes her again and and he does improve on like she actually is her own character and has her own desires and i mean he i mean she has some of that a little bit originally but definitely improves on it yeah. coming back around to it but he still ends up writing her as a super hypersexualized promiscuous person who like gets the main character elijah to sleep with her numerous times in a kind of like not a really not great <laughs> scenes and like writes her as even though and we'll talk about this i'm sure in a bit about like how he's obsessed with with uh social sciences as well as the hard sciences where he spends like all this time just writing about writing about her in all these sexual ways and passes it off as oh well it's because we're talking about the science of of these worlds and how their relationships work and blah 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 but in reality it, <laughs> you read it now and you're like and in the context of knowing what kind of person he, he was, you read it and you're like, yeah, you just, you did not understand, understand how to write women. 
or understand women, period. And it's kind of, it's a little, it's a little gross. And it's one of those things too, to contextualize it for everybody listening. He didn't, like when he came back to a series, he wasn't coming back to a series two years later. Like I believe the first robot book came out in the 50s and the last robot book came out in the 80s. And there are only three of them, I believe, three or four. Three and a half. Three and a half. (laughs) And so like one of the things that you can look at specifically from Asimov's progression in his series is they start in one decade and actually start in one generation and end in another generation. And you can kind of see those generational shifts and changes in the writing. And then you also have those moments of like overcorrecting because another one of the critiques of his writing was specifically his um, the fact that that there was no sex or sexuality and there were no aliens. Um, And so this wasn't always together, but the fact that neither one of those things came up. um, And so this, this critique specifically came from new wave science fiction authors who were usually British. Um, And so essentially he wrote the gods themselves, which is a book from the seventies. It was written to push back on those specific two things Asimov one six uh, and so the second part of three of the no- of of the novel is set on an alien world with three sexes and the sexual behavior of these creatures are extensively depicted um and beyond that um Asimov explained that he had a reluctance to write about aliens because of an early uh, an early incident with one of his editors who rejected his stories because he would make aliens a superior to humans so he kind of internalized that bias or he internalized that and assumed that any editor that he would come by was going to have this this anthropomorphic bias or like this this human bias that humans would have to be presented as better and so he didn't write about aliens at all um then in so interesting like the robot books the original the original ones caves of steel especially like there's no aliens in any of his foundation novels basically and i think that being a a low a low fiction like this takes place in the same world as us is actually part of why some of his concepts are so long lasting yeah but the the original caves of steel robots book is literally like there's the earthlings and there's the spacers the like the humans that left earth several generations ago went off to become their own separate people on 49 other planets and now they're pretty much the equivalent of aliens with how they have 300 plus year lifespans and their technology and their science and everything are so much further advanced than 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 earthlings that's so interesting what you're saying how he was rejected from the publisher and like refused to write about aliens but then literally like the same internalization the same concept of the 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 spacers are superior to the earth to the earthlings and huh yeah just interesting everyone's better than humans yeah because well, he because think... he didn't want to like the way he saw it specifically and how it was described is he didn't want to write weak aliens because in his mind it was just like if there's an alien they're gonna be better than a human especially if the two are meeting um which is super interesting and then when you move to well and the i mean crazy... it's I was going to say, as much as it's super interesting, I mean, that's basically how all, I mean, not all, but most people think anyways, because at the end of the day, like, we've been to, what, the moon? And so, at this point, if any alien race meets, makes it to us, they already have space travel 
uh, yeah. completed. So they therefore their technology will already be vastly and better than us in general. So like, as much as it is like, I just don't. I couldn't see writing weak aliens in general because unless we go to another planet somehow and we meet them aliens, there's no way aliens theoretically could ever be weaker than us because they will already have the technology that's better than us. Yeah. <laughs> by a long by a long way. So like I guess yeah. for me, like from a science perspective, like every astrophysicist we ever talk about or ever see, if you ever watch any alien stuff or just planets thing just by those common rules and principles, aliens have to be, cannot be weaker than humans because I we mean, can't make it to the moon. It, it's it's why Stephen Hawking said, stop sending signals into space. You're going to kill yes. us all. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's why, because <laughs> anybody that makes it here and we can't make it to them, well, just by principle, is better than us. Yeah. yeah. It's the reason why Thanos attacked Earth because he said, hey, look, we're good enough to now so <laughs> but well I, I mean in the grand arc of his writing he also clearly has a pretty dismal view of humanity i mean literally anytime yeah. anytime there's earthlings they're either these backwater people that destroyed their own planet or they're so far inferior technologically and sociologically to the spacers that they're like a separate species and all of his series are about the like collapse of of systems of government and the the end of empires so clearly he doesn't think so fondly of humanity which once again has anything that's happened since that time been any way different than what you just explained nope, i in fact <laughs> no. do not and like have... which is another thing because we've done the whole they did the science theory of like basically there is a theory and a formula that they use to see like how long a civilization would last and whether they get full space travel and every time they've done humans we've never made it to the point to where we could say we could actually make space travel because we will end up killing ourselves. And so therefore, I mean, this is actual like science theory theorems and uh, formulas they do and run all the time. Um, so like, he's not wrong in a lot of sense when you look at the principles of science and physics and basically how they're looking at space travel in general. Yeah. Yeah, well, and you know, that's why his science was real science fiction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But people so, are awful. Yeah, I can walk outside and tell you that. <laughs> so to end to round out this point with the critiques, um, the gods themselves, which features both aliens and sex and alien sex, uh, won the Nebula yeah. won the Nebula Award for Best Novel in 1972, and the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 1973. And Asimov said that of all his writings, he was most proud of the middle section of the gods themselves, which was where the aliens and sex and alien sex all came to be, which I just put in there because one, it shows that he like took people's critique and was like, F you, I can do it. And two, <laughs> this man has two of the most prestigious science fiction awards because he was spiteful. Like, <laughs> I love it. he's not only I can do it, but I'll do it better than all of you. <laughs> and then you can read the, gods the aliens do it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna be make the most, you know, upper sexual and aliens books, are better than us, so you know. Yeah. If you're gonna make the most hypersexual alien just doing it all the time. You might as well do it to troll everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the gods themselves is definitely one of the books that I want to read by him. Not yet. Only imagine. Imagine, imagine that audiobook. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that that one has. One. <laughs> maybe that's and maybe that's part of why 
Um, so the next part is just a lasting legacy of his work. So depending on the counting convention that you're using, so depending on what books you're counting, which ones you're not counting, if you're just counting his popular science, you're just counting his science fiction, that kind of stuff. Um, if you... Uh, so depending on if you're including the titles, the charts, collections, there may be over 500 books in Asimov's bibliography. There is at least 500 books in Asimov's bibliography, <laughs> um, as well as individual short stories, individual essays, and criticisms. Uh, so for his 100th, 200th, and 300th books based on his personal count, Asimov published Opus 100, Opus 200, and Opus 300, uh, celebrating his own writing. And then an extensive bibliography of Isaac Asimov's work has also been compiled by Ed Seiler, um, which puts him at well over 500 books. An online exhibit at the West Virginia University Libraries virtually complete uh, virtually complete Asimov collection displays features, visuals, and descriptions of some of his over six hundred books, games, audio recordings, videos, and wall charts. Like, love a good wall chart. <laughs> wall charts are amazing. <laughs> um, many first rare and autographic editions are in the library's rare book room. Um, book jackets and autographs are presented online with descriptions and images of children's books, science fiction, art, multimedia, and other materials in the collection. So at least 500 when you don't count everything, at least 600 when you count everything. Um, and also the scope that he has both science fiction novels and wall charts should just, yeah, show you the, the, the scope of what this guy was doing. Um, I'm more fascinated that the West Virginia University of all universities is the one that has this. That is interesting. I didn't look up why, though. Um, it does feel kind of random. The Mountaineers! You know, the next time someone tells you don't start a podcast because it'll ruin your uh, academic career, just show them Asimov's CV. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so his main series are, is the robot series, which is the Caves of Steel, the Naked Sun, the Robots of Dawn, Robots and Empire. You then have Galactic Empire novels, Pebble in the Sky, The Stars Like Dust, The Currents of Space. Then you have the original Foundation trilogy, which is Foundation, Foundation Empire, Second Foundation. Then you have the Foundation prequels, which is Prelude to Foundation and Forward the Foundation. Then you have the extended foundation series which is foundation's edge and foundation and earth then you have the lucky star series which is david star space ranger lucky star and the pirates of the asteroid lucky star in the ocean of venus lucky star and the big sun of mercury lucky star the moons of jupiter and lucky star and the rings of standard remember that is a ya series and then you have the norby chronicles which he wrote with janet asimov um, which there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's ten of those books, so I'm not going to name them all. Um, but with having such a vast collection of works, he doesn't have that many adapted films or anything, really. Uh, so his enti the entirety of the adapted works in film is Bicentennial Man, Terrible. End of Eternity, iRobot, Nightfall 2000, Nightfall 1980, and 1988, and then Robots 1988. Um, and that's it. 
and none of That's those are even it. like his novels. They're all based off of short, short stories. stories. Yep. Or in the case of iRobot, it's not even based on an actual story. It's kind of just an amalgamation of his concepts into a in an original story. Yep. Um, I feel like I've seen one of the Nightfalls, but I cannot remember, to be honest. And in addition to this legacy, to show you just how long it is, according to UNESCO's Index Trans Translationum database, Asimov is the world's 24th most translated author. Um, and from this, and when we look into the lasting, the lasting pieces of his legacy outside of just having had such a, a big impact and just the sheer number of his works and the number of awards that he won are two things. The first is psychohistory. Um, so psychohistory is the name of a fictional science in Isaac Asimov's foundation universe, which combined history, psychology, and mathematical statistics to create a nearly exact science of the behavior of very large populations of people, such as the Galactic Empire. Uh, Asimov used the analogy of a gas. In a gas, the motion of a single molecule is very difficult to predict, but the mass action of the gas can be predicted at a high level of accuracy. Asimov applied this concept to the population of the fictional Galactic Empire, which numbered in the quadrillions. Later on in his career, Asimov described historical origins of psychohistory in The Robots of Dawn, which takes place thousands of years before Foundation, and he describes roboticists Han Festolf's attempts to create a science based on careful observation of others, particularly his daughter. And in Prelude to Foundation, we learn that this was in fact one of Festolf's robots. Um, this word was coined, this word and concept was coined by Asimov, um, but it didn't have the staying power that robotics does. And Jason, I know you have some stuff to say about psychohistory here. Just that, like, in addition, in addition to being someone who is all into the hard sciences and, you know, as we'll talk about with the robot stuff, like, he was equally interested in social science and was no, like, his books are equal part social science fiction as they are uh, natural sciences fiction where his robots books and the empire books and the and probably everything he writes maybe it is is just seeped with questions about humanity itself and and the whole psychohistory when it comes to just like what what will what will people do <laughs> given this uh situation or these uh sets of of weird ways that societies are constructed like in some of the robot books there's planets where the people are abhorrent of human contact and they have to live miles apart from one another on their own separate estates because they're like uh, they've just developed as a society into being afraid of human contact and just gets into all of these crazy in-depth scientific speculations on and the ways that people think and act pretty much to the same extent that he does with the like the natural sciences uh you don't you don't always see a, a whole lot of that in in science fiction writing um at least so, to the same extent where it's like he will literally make up theorems and and scientific uh concepts to try and back up or or use real science to back up his, his social his social science theories 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, we dis. I mean, if anybody that's ever taken a genetics course, they tell you to do that with populations all the time. You know, they say, "Hey, we'll take five characteristical traits, and then we'll run a simulation all the time, and you see what happens." And for some people, it becomes a fun game. And obviously, it's one thing doing it with fish. You know, seeing if they turn into blue, teal, pink, or green, and what grows horns and what does not. But you know, doing it with humans is also a fun concept to see what actually happens. I mean. Was it the the sound of thunder, I believe, or lightning? That whole concept of like you oh, break one thing. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a it's a sound of thunder, which then informs the butterfly effect. Yeah, pretty much. Gotcha. Which I mean, that whole thing is fun to. I mean, the movie's still weird, but you know the whole Ray Bradbury. It was, it was a short story by Ray yes. Bradbury. It I mean, I know it's a short a story. Movie. I've read the short story, but I'm about okay. to make a movie out of it, and the movie's actually not as bad a thing. But no, the whole point of the thing is like kind of just seeing what you could do, just messing up certain variables is a fun thing to do i mean i mean i don't know it's fun i mean i used to play with these little programs like i said you can find genetic programs and plug in whatever characteristics you want and see and even civilization programs and see what happens all the time and it's fun to do and see what happens sometimes they die out real fast sometimes they go big sometimes they do whatever um, so, so i can see playing with that so question uh, so, Minority Report was based on Philip K. Dick's novel, and I think that came out in the 50s. Did psychohistory predate the Minority Report concept, or did Minority Report predate that? Because they seem kind of Foundation, similar. Foundation, I think, is older than Minority Report. Okay. It was, first, it was first a thing in Foundation, which I think he wrote the original short story in the yeah, yeah, that that predates it. Yeah, because the the novella from Dick was, I think, fifty five, mid fifties. I don't know the exact date. Um, that makes sense. Um, just on the on on social science fiction too. One thing that I've just been thinking about a whole lot recently, as a a random example. So like, his one of his his first published full novel was was Pebble in the Sky. I believe, which is basically a story about an older man who slips through time to 10,000 years in the future on an Earth that is now part of the Galactic Empire, and they're like this irradiated planet, and and some uh, folks representing the Empire come to the Earth and are trying to basically prove... So there's, there's this archaeologist who's trying to prove that Earth was the original planet that humanity uh came from across the whole empire and the empire is like no that's not possible humanity the the prevailing theory is is polygenesis the that that humanity is the ultimate form of of life and it started on different planets at the same time and just coincidentally and they all uh eventually proliferated across the galaxy and now here we are today and um I, the whole book is is about this this fight over polygenesis, which frankly, like, so polygenesis in like well, when we talk about that in our own planet is usually when we're talking about a theory of the evolution of humanity and that uh, black humans and white humans derived from different descendants of uh, of Noah in the Bible, and that's why there's different races, and that's. Uh, the super racist theory of polygenesis as it exists in like real time. And so like Asimov writing this book using the same, the same 
concept of polygenesis but on a galactic scale and like being like you are all like polygenesis in the 40s was probably still something that people believe in and um him writing this this story about how your idea of polygenesis is racist and absurd is like pretty pretty interesting way to write social science fiction i just i really appreciated reading reading that book like today and seeing how these concepts of social science played out throughout his writings because you know it's not just like he's he's using it as the background he'll he'll take some really in-depth scientific uh thought on on these theories and on all of the sides of each character's beliefs about human origin and you know ultimately the apologenesis is lost because it's an absurd racist gross theory but uh i just yeah um and then that moves into the last but why though here which is the three laws of robotics uh because asimov himself believed that he had two contributions that were his enduring contributions to the world and that was the foundation series and the three laws of robotics um so carl chapik who was a czech writer gave us the word robot when he used the word in a play in 1921 it's it robot was derived from a slavic term for a slave the word described man-like machines that worked on a factory assembly line and then in 1941 in his own short story called, uh, titled liar asimov became the first person to use the word robotics referring to the technology that robots possess the next year, he wrote another short star story called Runaround in which he introduced the three laws of robotics. These laws explain that a robot cannot hurt a human, must obey humans, and we'll get more into them. At the time, he believed it was simply the natural analog of words, such as mechanics or hydraulics, but for robots. Unlike his word psychohistory, the word robotics continues in mainstream technical use at use with Asimov's original definition. Additionally, Star Trek The Next Generation featured androids with uh, positronic brains, and the first season ep episode, Data Lore, called the, that, called the positronic brain Asimov's dream. The three laws of robotics form an organizing principle and unifying theme in Asimov's robotic-based fiction, appearing in his robot series, the stories linked to it, and his Lucky Star series for young adult fiction. The laws are incorporated into almost all of the post, uh, uh, all of the positronic robot robots appearing in his fiction and cannot be bypassed, being intended as a safety feature. Um, which I think isn't that the same thing with androids in Star Trek, Adrian? Um, yeah. I mean, I don't want to say like for sure because then people are going to come and be like, uh, "You're wrong." <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so other authors working in Asimov's fictional universe have also adopted them as references. Often uh, parodic appear through science fiction and, and other genres as well. So essentially the three laws that I'm about to say are something that even though Isaac Asimov made for his own work are replicated in pretty much every other piece of work that employs robots or androids in this way. Uh, so the first law, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Second law, a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings except where such others would cause conflict with the first law. Third law, a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. 
Um, the original laws have been altered and elaborated on by Asimov and other authors. Asimov himself made slight modifications to the first three in various books and short stories to further develop how robots would interact with humans and each other. In later fiction, where robots had taken responsibility for the government of whole planets and human civilizations, Asimov also added a fourth law, known as a Zara the Zareth Law, to precede the others, and it states, a robot may not harm humanity or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm. The three laws and the Zareth have pervaded science fiction and are referred to in many books, films, and, uh, and other media. They've impacted, but the coolest thing is that they've impacted ethics on artificial intelligence in the real world as well. Um, so robot eth or robotic ethics is an entire field of study the same way uh, astrobiological ethics is, which I actually wish I had kept doing that. That was cool. Um, but robotic ethics and morality uh, essentially is that robotics, ro robots and artificial intelligences do not inherently contain or obey the three laws. Their human creators have to choose to program them in and devise a means to do so. Robots already exist that the robots that already exist in our world um, are too simple to understand when they are causing pain or injury and to know when to stop. Many are constructed with physical safeguards such as bumpers, warning beepers, safety cages, or restricted access zones to prevent accidents. Even the most complex robots that are currently produced are incapable of understanding and applying the three laws. Significant advances in AI would, need to, would be needed in order for it to do so, and essentially if AI could reach the human level intelligence, the inherent ethical complexity as well as cultural and contextual dependency of the laws prevent them from being a good candidate to formulate the robotics design with Asimov's constraints. That being said, in March 2007, the South Korean government announced that later in the year it would issue a robot, a robot ethics charter setting standards for both users and manufacturers. According to Park uh, Hae-young, the Ministry of Information and Communication, the charter may reflect Asimov's three laws attempting to set ground rules for future developments in robotics. Then in July, August of 2009, uh, issue of the IEE Intelligence Systems, Robin Murphy, who is a Raytheon professor of computer science and engineering at Texas A&M, and David D. Woods, who's the director of the Cognitive Systems Engineering Laboratory at Ohio State, proposed the three laws of responsible robotics as a way to simulate discussion about the role, and the role of responsibility and authority when designing not only a single robotic platform, but a larger system in which the platform are operates. So think algorithms and stuff like that, which goes... Um, so those three laws that they came up with are a human may not deploy a robot without the human robot work system meeting the highest legal and professional standards of safety ethics. A robot must respond to humans as appropriate for their roles. A robot must be endowed with, with sufficient situated autonomy to protect its own existence as long as such protection provides smooth transfer of control, which does not conflict with the first or second laws. So that's an actual thing. Why do those sound like the worst versions of what we just talked about? Yeah, like, why did they just use the other thing? Like, who determines what is the highest... That's, like, there's that sound... too much ambiguity in those laws. Well, those sound harder. like they devalue the robots more than anything. <laughs> exactly. To be honest. Well, the, they're built on the idea that, like, the humans have to put something into them. 
So it puts more onus on what a human does to build a robotic system than the actual robots themselves. We just the spent current... the past hour saying humans are terrible. So why would we want to devalue because robots this, for more humans? Because this actually has to do with something now. Because none of our existing robotics actually can reach the capacity of thinking for themselves and understanding laws. So the important thing is making humans making sure humans can create algorithms and robotic systems that can then enforce the laws. We're all going to die. I mean, it sounds like Korea algorithms... just really wanted to be special and make their own. Well, that this wasn't Korea. <laughs> this this was uh Americans. This is American. Even worse. That's why I said like we reading suck. this the way they We're deployed doomed. the language and everything, it sounds like they devalued the robot standard in general and basically um I don't think they devalued it. They said, humans, you need to make sure that you do this when you make robots. The robots aren't thinking for themselves. It's the robots, it's the humans who make them that are putting all those systems in place. It's like, it's why algorithms are still racist and some technology doesn't work on dark skin because the people who are making them aren't thinking about the other thing. So the importance is putting it on humans to actually think about those robotic systems that they're creating, which I don't think is a bad thing. So, I mean, the whole thing is they, just broken in the beginning because it's like a human may not deploy. Okay, a human will do it whether he wants to or not. Like he's he's not thinking about checks and balances on algorithms. He's just like, is he going to do it or he's not going to do it? So just like right away, like ah, oh, the law says I may or may not, or I may not deploy the robot without that. thinking about these things. But the human's just going to be like, oh, not deploy that shit. Like send that robot there. Well, that's why they're talking about it, because they actually want to have robotic ethics to keep that stuff in line. The same way biomedical ethics keep that pieces in line, because just putting coke in things like they used to do doesn't work, which is why biomedical ethics is an entire field to keep stuff from happening. I mean, the ones that the dumb Americans came up with is more realistic, because, like, I mean, there's no such thing as a positronic brain. We don't, yeah. we don't right. have, we don't have an ability to just say, we've done it. We've programmed robots to never break these three laws and it's perfect now. And it's like, <laughs> until such a time comes, I guess we're stuck with saying, well, the Russian came up with these ones. So we're making our own American version. Um, there Even is another the version. Most of his life in America. <laughs> Uh, so there is another version. In 2013, Alan Winfield suggested at EU that at a EU CCOG meeting, a revised five laws that had been published with commentary. Uh, specifically, robots. So one, robots are multi-use tools. Robots should not be designed solely or primarily to kill or harm humans, except in the interest of national security, which so I clearly like undercuts clearly the, the American did not have that this thing. One. So this is another American. That is, um, nope, I don't even need to hear the rest. These are useless. <laughs> humans, this is Space Force. This is like Space Force stuff right now. This is what this is. Humans, not robots, are responsible agents. Robots should be designed and operated as far as practical to comply with the existing laws, fundamental rights, and freedoms, including privacy. Uh, robots are products. They should be designed using processes that assure their safety and security. Robots are manufactured artifacts. They should not be designed in a deceptive way to exploit vulnerable users. Instead, their machine nature should be transparent. And finally, the, per the person with legal responsibility for a robot should be attributed. 
So, are these the laws then that were used for Detroit Become Human video game that came out? It like sounds like it. It sounds like it, and I don't like it. As soon as all you I know, give... we got tw- 2013, and what, that game came out, what, 2018, 2019? Yeah. You know, a few years of concept, and then a few years of development. We can, we can probably get along that. As soon as you give a national security exception to anything... You yeah. handed over the monopoly of violence, and you have created an absolutely useless rule. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, that's all I had for that. So, on to the fun facts. Uh, Matt already brought it up that he, or I, Matt brought up this humanist association. I brought up the fact that he was the president of the American Humanist Situation, uh, American Humanist Association, uh, which also leads into the fun fact that Isaac Asimov is one of the most well-known atheists in America, which is really cool. Um, he what he was culturally Jewish, but atheist as a non-religion. Um, the asteroid fifty twenty is named as Asimov. Um, so the asteroid fifty twenty, a crater on the planet Mars, a Brooklyn elementary school, Honda's humanoid robot Asimo, and four literary awards are all named after Isaac Asimov. What about As- the South Park episode with Osmo? I yeah, Osmo. Yeah. <laughs> um, Asimov was so prolific that that his books span every single major category of the Dewey Decimal System classification, except for category one hundred, which is philosophy and psychology. Despite him actually having so he so. If you go into any category of the Dewey Decimal System, you will find an Asimov book. Except for in psychology, and instead of category 100, but he did actually write a couple of sci- uh, psycholo- psychological papers. They just aren't in. They just aren't featured in there. Um, and then my favorite one, cause musical Isaac Asimov actually wrote a movie musical for Paul McCartney. It was a <laughs> robot That's, musical. I did, not, I did not have. We're going to talk about a musical on my bingo for this episode. <laughs> Let alone Paul McCartney. <laughs> um, and that's it. That's all I have for Isaac Asimov. That's all. That's all. <laughs> Paul McCartney singing about robots. Uh, so yeah. Uh, final thoughts, everybody. Adrian. Uh, yeah, for me. So I didn't really talk about this episode, but just mainly because I'm absorbing a lot. I'm, I just knew we're already way over time already so <laughs> i didn't think i really had um a whole lot other than just kind of like digest um what this is and kind of what stories that i would be interested in in listening to in the future and there seems like some really cool ones here um like super lasting effects right like we have nothing you know staying power wise of robotics obviously obviously not the first but like we've talked about many times over the course of this year like just because you're not the first one to do it doesn't mean you can't be the best one to do it and he definitely brought brings a lot to the robotics part of this and i guess alien humping which is interesting uh because i too would like more alien humping in my star wars that'd be i'd be okay with that so to Uh, be fair there's a lot of that in 50 (laughs) science fiction they were mad at him because he didn't have it well he should have added it in they would have been fantastic it would have been great (laughs) um (laughs) it, it it seems it seems great um like if I'm just being completely honest, I just really like iRobot. I, like, <laughs> I wore that 
DVD out. I love the, I love iRobot. I love the concept of iRobot. But if these last little parts you talked about of us like actually doing these laws has anything to do with it, then like we're pretty we're screwed. Like the dude is like the father of like robotics for a reason. Just go with his laws, and then we'll worry about everything else after because we're we're gonna die. <laughs> if we can't have his laws, we don't deserve any. No robots. Yeah, exactly. No robots until we've got his laws. Yeah. And it's just crazy. Like, this dude is going to be, like, in the conversation. This science fiction writer guy is going to be, like, the basically the governing, you know, what everyone's going to start with on this conversation. And he just wrote, like, a bunch of books and was really, really smart. Like, that's insane. Yeah, which I guess kind of goes into my final thoughts. Of, one, I... One, I don't really read a lot of books, per se, and so but it's always been something of, like, his work, just because I'm, like, I knew I knew of him before for all the other ends that we talked about, the science parts and the robot parts and the, you know, the humanist association parts, and not so much of his work was. It actually took me, like, probably a little while of actually, like, looking into, oh, he wrote a lot of stuff, apparently. <laughs> that wasn't that science fiction? Oh, that's a thing? Um, but no, obviously... The man did a lot of stuff that clearly intrigues me and based on the foundations of like just whether science and just looking at some of the cool, interesting aspects of what you can do when you, you know, apply random things, I guess, or random concepts to principles and see what you get, whether it is splitting an atom and ending up in weird times and whatnot else, or just, you know, how we take, you know, different variables and what happens from there. So... It will be interesting to see, you know, kind of like moving forward, especially in the field of robotics, of what happens. And then, too, I guess, trying to add any of the layers of, you know, the science fiction part as we move into possibly space, if we don't blow ourselves up first. Uh, you know, how this all applies from man writing basically back, like, almost not quite 100 years, like, what, 80 years ago, 90 almost at this or uh, 70 yeah. at this point. Um, so seeing what how his books line up because that, that has been an interesting thing. I think as we've gotten further and further of people going back and looking at these science fiction writers and probably including himself, uh, Asimov, you know, what they wrote about and everything and how they're laying on as we get farther and farther. And while they're not always a hundred percent correct, it's been interesting to see how many of them get seem to be a lot of, uh, they kind of line up in some ways. And so seeing how we get farther and farther, what his works end up lining up per se as we get into the uh, future. Yeah, that's kind of where my final thought is because we end up seeing this cycle of it happens in science fiction, it happens in real life, and it's one of those things where it's kind of like a, a chicken-egg question, like which one inspired what? Uh, so like uh, sliding doors or like uh, automatic doors was a Star Trek thing first, um, and it ha it wasn't like thought of really most outside there, and then it ended up coming a thing. Same thing with like uh, the biometric scanners and like those kind of stuff and so like when we look at Asimov stuff it's going to be interesting to see like I don't know if there's a way to detach what people inspire and then what gets made actually scientifically and so I think that it's going to be really cool because we're getting to the place in robotics where it feels like we're getting closer and closer not necessarily to replicating human intelligence but we're getting closer to replicating action uh, so, like, if you want to get creeped out, watch the Boston Dynamics videos of, like, uh, the dog robots that they make that move very much like dogs 
or the dancing robots, which are terrifying, but actually mimic the very small movements that a human body makes. And so for me, it's really interesting that like the first thing that we're adapting now in this current stage of robotics is how do we replicate the very small nuances in human and biological movement. And so I wonder how long it is going to take for us to start moving toward that positronic brain. I believe they're doing that with dolphins to replace actual marine animals as well. Oh, wow. Um, So that way you don't have the flipper can actually live in the ocean and not have to be in the pool. Um, Damn. But no, obviously, uh, by the way, I think it's more of one of those, I think if we switch, I think it's just priorities. I feel as much as we feel we're so far off, I feel like if we just said, hey, instead of funding all the churches, we cut all that off, tax them, and then we fund all this stuff in robotics, I feel like we could be there in like five, ten years at this point. Like, it's just, we devalue science in general. Not saying that we don't get big stuff here, but, like, when you look at budgets of education and, like, especially science and everything, they get very, very slivers. So if any of this money eventually transitions and go forward, you, I think we'd be surprised on how fast um, we can actually move forward. I guess also just thinking of, like, what we did with NASA, especially in the city of how fast we progressed so much stuff. Because when you actually focus on it and you actually vested it and you actually prioritize it, um, I think we could. It, I think it could be a lot closer than what we think. It, think about it. It's just one of those of like, hey, you get a screwdriver and three nails. Go make me a human robot. Versus we give them unlimited budgets and see if they can make. Yeah, it. we could be banging robots in no time if we just wanted it bad enough. <laughs> I mean, Adrian's there's other countries that seem to, to be farther episode. ahead of that um, already. You just don't want it badly enough. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, final thoughts. Yeah, yeah Asimov's got uh, got some some smart stuff in his noggin. Uh, I like his I like the books I've read most of them so far. I recommend. I honestly recommend uh, what I did and start with robot books because and not foundation because i think that the like the stuff that we've been talking about with the robots is just it's it's the most interesting and the most thoroughly conceived and the most like affecting everything that we know about science fiction basically since then and uh yeah well jason thank you for coming on this episode uh why don't you tell everybody where they can find you or interact with you however you want to do it yeah uh i'm on twitter at flatter underscore you f-l-a-t-t-e-r underscore y-o-u uh you can find my editing and writing at but why though and at foodtank.com and yeah that's me (laughs) (laughs) exciting Uh, and you can find the podcast uh, but why the PC on every single social media platform in existence except for that stupid one that Ted Cruz created Um, and you can find me oh and if you want to support us a little bit more head on over to patreon.com slash but why the PC you can find me on twitter at oh my myth randier adrian yeah, you can find me on Twitter at SuperReese93, S-U-P-E-R-R-U-I-Z, 93. Matt? I'm going to go back to making Anno, which is essentially just the game version of making a civilization to see what ends up happening and how long you last before you kill everybody else. <laughs>